You're listening to The Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com Welcome, my friends. Welcome to another edition of The Corbett Report. I am your host, James Corbett, podcasting to you, as always, from the sunny climes of western Japan on this 7th day of March, 2010. I'd like to welcome all of the listeners back to the podcast and invite them all, as always, to check into the websites CorbettReport.com, AlqaedaDoesn'tExist.com, ReportageBook.com, and ClimateGate.tv as well as those websites that help to spread this podcast and help it reach even further, including archive.org, where you can find backups of this podcast going back to episode 70, in case you ever have troubles reaching our server, cascadiapublicradio.org, where you can find low bitrate, small file size versions of this podcast for download, as well as many other quality podcasts, radioforall.net, and zeropointradio.com. And, of course, I'd like to remind all the listeners that we do have copies of the new documentary 2020 Hindsight Censorship on the Frontline from PeaceRevolution.org, Richard Andrew Grove, and Divergent Films. And you can not only watch the film in its entirety for free on YouTube.com, you can also get the DVD, DVD DVD-ROM, which includes documentation to back up the film, including... Richard Andrew Grove's startling 2006 testimony project Constellation, as well as past episodes of PeaceRevolution.org and various other media files. And all of that is available for a $10 donation to any of a number of websites, including MediaMonarchy.com, The Maria Heller Show, Jack Blood at DeadlineLive.info, GnosticMedia.com, and ThinkFree.ca. If you do decide to donate to help support the Corbett Report and to receive a copy of the DVD, there is information up on the homepage underneath the video player. Just click on the banner and you can find out all about how to get your copy of the DVD. And for those who are interested in exactly what the money from this will be going towards funding, I'll put up a link in the documentation section, which of course is available at CorbettReport.com under today's episode and contains all of the links to all of the documents and files cited in today's episode. I'll put up a link in the documentation section for today's episode to two of the items that I'd like to purchase with the funds that I'll receive from these donations. And these are related to getting a lavalier microphone to help make the videos look even better and to maintain their excellent sound quality because, of course, audio is very important in these types of videos. So once again, please take a look at the homepage for more information about how to donate to help support the Corbett Report. And without further ado, let's get to today's Sunday update.
This is James Corbett of CorbettReport.com with your Sunday update for this 7th day of March 2010. And now for the real news. In our top story this week, newly obtained documents reveal that the United Nations is seeking to create a new global environmental governance structure to oversee a multi-trillion dollar economic transfer scheme in order to create a green world order. The plan, revealed in a discussion paper for the Global Ministerial Environmental Forum in Bali last month, calls for a staggering $45 trillion to be transferred from rich countries to developing nations. The money transferred would be overseen by UN programs and bureaucrats. The plan is remarkable for its audacity, hoping to construct such a world governmental system at the World Summit on Sustainable Development in Rio de Janeiro in 2012, a summit that will mark the 20th anniversary of the commencement of the Carbon Eugenics Agenda at the very site where that agenda was first revealed. In a related development, billionaire Bill Gates, who is often billed by the corporate media as the richest man in the world despite the existence of trillionaires like the Rothschilds, garnered attention this week for a statement he made at the 2010 TED conference last month. Now, the world today has 6.8 billion people. That's headed up to about 9 billion. Now, if we do a really great job on new vaccines, healthcare, reproductive health services, we could lower that by perhaps 10 or 15 percent. The statement is noteworthy as it reveals the real agenda behind the Gates-funded drive to vaccinate the third world, which is not to increase the population as popularly conceived, but to reduce it, ostensibly to reduce carbon dioxide emissions. Gates funds such organizations as Gavi, the Global Alliance for Vaccines and Immunization, which has been caught testing experimental vaccines on Africans without their knowledge or consent. The Gavi Alliance also includes the WHO, which was caught adding an abortifacient known as HCG to tetanus vaccines in the third world in the 1990s. In a developing story, legislation in the Senate that would repeal essential protections for national security whistleblowers continues to move closer towards passage. The bill, identified as S-372, started out as whistleblower protection legislation, but members of the Obama administration have added poison pills at the last minute that would in fact strip whistleblowers of what few protections they currently have. Earlier this week, the Corbett Report talked to Stephen Cohn, executive director of the National Whistleblower Center, about the bill and its provisions. Right now, under the First Amendment, we're supposed to have the right of freedom of speech, without fear. But under this law the Senate is about to pass, they, it's going to give the director, just the director of any intelligence agency of, of the Department of Defense, of the Department of Commerce, the right to summarily fire any whistleblower with no judicial review, no administrative review, if the Secretary of Commerce, the, 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 the head of justice, the head of the Defense Department, either of them say, oh, it's in the interest of national security. You're fired. You have no rights. If this law passes and if over one half of the entire federal workforce is subjected to summary firings with no judicial review for blowing the whistle, that impact will be devastating. It's a complete betrayal of the First Amendment. It's a betrayal of what I think America has come to expect of the rights of employees. But that is in the Senate law, and it's moving towards passage. 
The bill is being passed via a special legislative process known as hotlining, meaning it will not be brought to the Senate floor for a vote. Instead, the bill will clear the Senate unless a senator objects to it. Whistleblower activists point out that it would be relatively easy to get at least one senator to object to the bill if citizens began to bring political pressure to the issue. So far, the legislation has been completely ignored by the establishment media. On a positive note this week, the disintegration of the establishment media continues apace as the vast majority of people continue turning off their TVs and putting down their newspapers and turning to the internet for their news. As Ars Technica is reporting, the internet has now surpassed newspapers as the third most popular source for news among American citizens, right behind local and national TV news broadcasts. The newspaper industry continues its headlong death spiral this week, as the LA Times released an edition of the paper with a full-page advertisement for Tim Burton's Alice in Wonderland gracing the paper's front page. The move is said to have brought in $700,000 for the Times, but may have cost more than that as outraged subscribers begin cancelling their subscriptions. As if to confirm that TV news is to be the next victim of the establishment media, CNN has begun a fear-mongering attempt to portray those who get their news from the internet as deranged killers. Well, what we know about the writings he's made online is that it does fit some of the types, some of the tropes that we've seen throughout the first year of Obama in particular. A lot of the conspiracy theories. Of course, 9-11 conspiracy theory goes back to the Bush era. But this, this anti-government fervor, which has really been stoked on the Internet with particular intensity in the last year, he does follow. But it's a mistake to try to shoehorn him into any one ideology or to make him fit any existing narrative, especially a partisan political narrative. What's very clear is that this is a very disturbing individual who's drunk very deeply out a lot of the hate and paranoia that's being sold on the internet by a lot of these conspiracy entrepreneurs and that's what happens when you use hate as a cheap and easy recruiting tool but it can lead to violence especially when the folks who are drinking it are kind of unstable to begin with no word yet on whether CNN applies this logic to six of the 10 9-11 commissioners including Commission Chairman Kane and Hamilton as well as Bob Kerry, Max Cleland, Tim Romer and John Lehman all of whom have said that the 9-11 Commission was a cover-up and that a new investigation is needed. In 2000, it was revealed that several officers from the U.S. Army's 4th Psychological Operations Group at Fort Bragg worked in the news division at CNN's Atlanta headquarters starting in 1999. In 2006, it was revealed that Anderson Cooper himself was recruited by the CIA while a sophomore in Yale. In 2009, CNN's ratings continued to plummet, leaving the network in last place among television news outlets. Meanwhile, viewers continue to turn off television altogether, as recent research indicates that TV viewing leads to brittle bones, alcoholism, pregnancy, child neglect, and up to 80% greater risk of dying from cardiovascular disease, regardless of how much one exercises. There are no such ill effects being reported about internet usage. Now, stay tuned to CorbettReport.com for episode 120 of the Corbett Report, Economics 101, where we talk to John Williams, G. Edward Griffin, Catherine Austin Fitz, and F. William Engdahl about the reality behind the corporate-controlled media's economic headlines. Hello? Ah, Mr. Victim, yes, I'm glad to say that I've got the go-ahead to lend you the money you require, yes? Uh, we would, of course, want as security the deeds of your house, of your aunt's house, 
of your second cousin's house, of your wife's parents' house, and of your granny's bungalow. And uh, we will, in addition, need a controlling interest in your new company, uh, unrestricted access to your private bank account, uh, the deposit in our vaults of your three children as hostages, and a full legal indemnity against any acts of embezzlement carried out against you by any members of our staff during the normal course of their duties. <laughs> No, I'm afraid we couldn't accept your dog instead of your youngest child. We would like to suggest a brand new scheme of ours under which 51% of both your dog and your wife pass to us in the event of your suffering a serious accident. <laughs> Fine, no, not at all. Nice to do business with you. Welcome, my friends, to episode 120 of The Corbett Report, Economics 101. It has struck me afresh this week just how central it is to understand what is happening in the economic sphere, because the economic sphere underlies our entire socio-political superstructure. When we start to understand just how central money, the nature of money, what defines money is to all of the things that are taking place today, we will truly begin to understand how best to fight back against the system that is enslaving us. And as if we needed any fresh reminder that we are facing one of the most gargantuan and massive economic meltdowns in human history, we had confirmation of that from a very unlikely source very recently, from the 23rd of February 2010 from a New York Times blog, Greenspan bemoans crisis, but who is to blame? Quote, Talk about a bad time to bring up the Great Depression. Alan Greenspan, the former Federal Reserve chairman, argued Tuesday that the world was coping with by far the greatest financial crisis globally ever, according to Bloomberg News. But guess who many people think is responsible for a financial crisis even worse than the Depression? Why, Mr. Greenspan himself. According to the Real World Economics Review blog, which just gave him its dynamite prize in economics for blowing up the global economy, Mr. Greenspan said in a speech on Wednesday that the recovery from the global recession was extremely unbalanced, and he pursued his comparison to the Depression, according to Bloomberg. Greenspan said that while the economy was in worse shape than the Great Depression, the recent financial crisis was potentially more harmful than in the 1930s because never had short-term credit literally withdrawn. But Mr. Greenspan can only look to himself for this dismal situation, according to the Real World Economics Review blog. It said he had been judged the economist most responsible for causing the global financial crisis, with second place going to the late Milton Friedman and third place going to Lawrence H. Summers, President Obama's chief economic advisor. End quote. Now, if we were to gain a proper understanding and perspective on the history that has brought us to this economic precipice, we would know just what a disservice it is to Milton Friedman to lump him in with Larry Summers and Alan Greenspan, two ignoble people who really do deserve their infamy for having brought us to this new greatest depression. But the problem is that the average Joe on the street knows a thousand times more about Tiger Woods and his mistresses than he will ever know about Milton Friedman or Alan Greenspan or Larry Summers or the ideas that these people have argued or what they're arguing about, even though what they are talking about affects every single person's 
pocketbook, even those living in other countries, not just the United States. We have been conditioned to believe that economics is a boring and dry subject, but it really is the basis for all transactions that take place in our society, and as such, it has a fascinating, incredible history with tales of intrigue that would outdo anything that the most vivid imagination could come up with, and it has all been obscured and intentionally mystified under the guise of stultifyingly dry vernacular and jargon, which are impenetrable to all but the most learned of scholars. Well, there are some people who are out there right now who are working to make this readable and understandable and enjoyable for the masses, and as much as I would hate to promote his work because of his absolutely abominable stance on 9-11 truth, Matt Tybee of the Rolling Stone has been doing more than just about any other reporter to bring this information to the masses, and his very recent story in Rolling Stone, Wall Street's Bailout Hustle, is absolutely fantastic for the way that it breaks down what's going on and the various schemes that Goldman and their golden cohorts are engaging in in order to completely commandeer and crash whatever is left of the economy. So that is highly recommended although I highly recommend you stay away from anything Matt Tybee writes on 9-11 Truth. Although, what am I saying? Of course, check it out for yourself. At any rate, there are some people out there that are attempting to do this, but not nearly enough. And once again this week, I have been struck afresh with just how important it is that we begin to rediscover this economic history that really explains the history that has been in our textbooks. And things that really are inexplicable from any other point of view become very apparent when we see such things as, for example, the entire political history of the United States as a history of the people's struggle to wrest the power to create money from the bankers. In fact, that was the central struggle that defined so much of American history, and that has been completely removed from the history textbooks. In my own humble attempt to contribute towards a greater understanding of these absolutely essential subjects, I started the Economics 101 YouTube series last August. In that series, I've talked to a number of incredibly engaging and interesting economic authors, analysts, and historians about some of the vital issues which we find ourselves facing at the present moment, including Bob Chapman of the InternationalForecaster.com, John Williams of ShadowStats.com, Gerald Salente of the Trends Research Institute, Michelle Chosodovsky of GlobalResearch.ca, G. Edward Griffin, Paul Grignon, Catherine Austin Fitz, the list goes on and on. All of them extremely interesting interviews on extremely interesting topics. So to that end, I'd like to draw some attention of my podcast listeners to this YouTube series and to highlight some of these conversations and consider them in their context in order to begin a conversation on these subjects at greater length and in more detail. Now, on the subject of how our understanding of the subject of economics and all of the data contained therein are shaped by the oligarchy in order to keep people away from this information, let's take a listen to an interview I conducted with someone whose entire career is built on exposing the various scams in the economic sphere and what passes for economic statistics, which, of course, is really just a mirage that is used to keep up the House of Cards until such time as it's convenient for the oligarchy to bring that House of Cards come crashing down. I'm referring, of course, to John Williams of the excellent ShadowStats.com, 
And in September of last year, I had the chance to talk to John Williams about unemployment statistics and how they are being manipulated. Hello, this is James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, welcoming you back to Economics 101, the video series where we're exploring that economic jargon that's becoming more and more a part of our daily lives. Today we're going to lift the veil on unemployment statistics, and joining me on the line to help me do so is Mr. John Williams of ShadowStats.com. John Williams, thank you for joining me today. Uh, thank you for having me. Well, Mr. Williams, when the U.S. Department of Labor's Bureau of Labor Statistics comes out with their May unemployment figure of 9.4%, uh, what does that figure really mean, and where do they get the data to compile that number? The uh, Bureau of Labor Statistics actually conducts a uh, monthly survey of households around the country, about 60,000 households, where they <coughs> have a long series of questions uh, answered on people's employment, what they're doing, their uh, characteristics as to uh, you know, sex, uh, age, and all those uh, data get uh, tabulated. And uh, the key in terms of the unemployment rate, which I think is what most people look at, is uh, the, the portion of the um, people who are considered in the workforce uh, who are out of work want a job, willing, they're willing and able to work, and they've looked for work in the last month. Those are the basic quality, uh, qualifications for, for being counted as unemployed. The unemployment rate has nothing to do with the new jobs for, or excuse me, the new claims for unemployment that gets published weekly. Um, it's based solely on this on a survey. And it is a, uh, a scientifically designed sampling. And based on the definitions, you are getting results that are probably uh, uh, meaningful within a certain uh, uh, confidence interval, statistical confidence interval. Uh, the numbers uh, generally get reported on a seasonally adjusted basis, which may seem strange to people because uh, uh, what you'll find is that in <clears throat> a point of time where uh, a lot of people get hired uh, let's say for the, uh, the holiday shopping season at the end of the year or get laid off thereafter in January, the unemployment rate is adjusted so that in, in, in January where the unemployment rate normally would spike, they tend to lower the reporting of the, unemployed, uh, the, the unemployment rate because that happens every year on a seasonally adjusted basis. So uh, uh, what's being reported there is not necessarily what people are experiencing. But in a broader sense, uh, the unemployment rate was uh, first calculated or unemployment was first surveyed uh, back in the 1940s. And its definition has changed over time. Um, the way I look at unemployment uh, is along the lines of what would be more common experience for most people. If you ask the average person uh, whether or not he or she is uh, unemployed, it doesn't take too long to get a response. The average person knows whether uh, whether he or she is he or she is unemployed. Uh, they don't have to think about it. 
however, if you think you're unemployed, that may not necessarily match the government's definition. The government publishes uh, six levels of unemployment. They, they have a level U1, U for unemployment, up through U6. The level U3 is the popularly followed um, unemployment rate, which was published uh, at 9.4% seasonally adjusted in May. Um, the broadest measure, U6, uh, was up around 16% um, in May. And that included, um, among other uh, categories, uh, those were referred to as discouraged workers. Now, a discouraged worker um, would be a person who would normally consider himself uh, to, to be unemployed. Discouraged worker is someone who's out of work, uh, wants a job, is willing to willing and able to work, but what uh, differentiates uh, this person from uh, what's standardly considered unemployed by the government is uh, that they haven't they haven't looked for work in the last year. The reason they haven't done that is that there, there are no jobs to be had where they live. Well, back in 1994, uh, all these series were redefined, the questions were, were redefined, and um, uh, up through that point in time, a discouraged worker had been considered someone, uh, you know, who, uh, you know, again, was with, without work, willing and able to work, but hadn't looked for work because there was no job to be had. There was no time limit on it. You could have been discouraged for two years. You could have been discouraged for five years. didn't make any difference how long you hadn't looked. At that time, it was redefined that if you hadn't looked for work in the last year, uh, or that uh, you were just considered discouraged. Uh, but if it was more than a year, if you hadn't looked for work in, say, two years or five years, you were no longer counted. And that knocked several million people off the, uh, uh, off the roles of the unemployed, the, the broader measures of the unemployed. Um, I estimate what that number would be now if they still counted the discouraged workers they were, the way they were counted back in uh, 1994 and before. And on that basis, I would say that the broad unemployment rate is probably around 20%. If you went around and just asked people, you know, are you unemployed or not, the, the response you'd get would be in the 20% range. Well, that is a startling discrepancy between your number and the Bureau of Labor Statistics number. So just to be sure, you're saying that you're using the same data, but you're just using different definitions to arrive at your number. Well, I'm, I'm using what the government refers to as a U6 unemployment rate which they have up, I, th I think it's 15.8% as of, as of May. Uh, um, it's close to 16%. I'm saying that if you add in the, the longer-term discouraged workers who are no longer counted, that would push it up to about 20%. That's, that's the only differential I'm, I'm making, is I'm taking the government's broadest measure and adding back in the, the, the portion of the discouraged workers who were eliminated by definition in 1994. Well, Mr. Williams, why is the U6 figure not the one that's usually reported on the evening news as the unemployment rate? Uh, generally, because uh, the government is filled with politicians, and um, the happier the picture they can put out, the better. I mean, it's, it's, it's that simple. The, the Bureau of Labor Statistics 
Uh, people who work there, they, 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 they do the best they can to come up with good numbers. The, the definitions are not necessarily set, set by the average worker. It often is uh, dictated at much higher levels and sometimes by Congress. Uh, the, the numbers over time have been uh, uh, massaged both in terms of methodology and sometimes actual playing with the numbers uh, by both Republican and Democrat administrations. Uh, but generally, if, if you're in government and uh, you're, you're looking for re-election, uh, the lower the unemployment rate that's reported, the better. Uh, the lower the rate of inflation, the better. The higher the, the, the growth in the economy and the gross domestic product, the better. And um, so biases generally have been built into those numbers over time uh, that, that tend to uh, give you the more favorable numbers. Once again, John Williams of ShadowStats.com. And just in case anyone out there needs to be reminded that this is an ongoing issue and not one that was simply a problem back at the beginning of the economic collapse, we have this story from just last Friday, March 5th, 2010, from CNSNews.com. Administration blames job losses on snow. Critics say economic uncertainty stalls job creation. Quote, Obama administration officials are touting the less than 100,000 jobs that some economists predicted could have been lost last month because of record snowstorms. But critics charge that the 36,000 people who became unemployed in February is no cause for celebration. The jobs report by the Department of Labor released on Friday also saw the unemployment rate remain at 9.7%. These disappointing unemployment numbers should send another clear message to the administration and majority leaders that their unsustainable policies of bigger government, higher debt, and soaring spending continue to have a detrimental effect on our economy, Representative Sam Graves, a House Small Business Committee ranking member, said in a statement he issued after the report's release. End quote. Now, of course, we know, as we've just heard, that those are cooked numbers, but even the cooked numbers show massive, massive unemployment, and it's pervasive throughout the economy. And that's exactly why Republican representatives like Sam Graves have to attack the Obama administration for this high unemployment and big government and higher debt, while ignoring the fact that Bush tripled the size of government and brought the national debt to never-before-seen heights. Of course, we know that the phony left-right debate only keeps the monetary system in this death spiral, a death spiral that has been carefully calculated to enslave the population by keeping them forever in debt to the banksters. And listeners of this podcast will probably know by now the general mechanism by which that is done. That is to say, by making the government beholden to banksters who own the private central banks, such as the Federal Reserve, for printing the money. And through that system, the population of America and many, many, many other countries around the world are in fact indebted to banks. Now, this mechanism is the fundamental underlying mechanism through which economic sleight of hand like that we see in the unemployment rate is perpetuated. So it is the foundational issue and the one that we must attack from every possible angle in order to make people aware of who the real enemy is and what they are really doing. In that regard, I had the great honor to speak to G. Edward Griffin in October of last year, 
G. Edward Griffin, of course, being one of the premier researchers on the privately owned Federal Reserve, how it was created, and how it perpetuates the debt-based fiat money system in the United States. And in October of last year, I talked to G. Edward Griffin on Economics 101 about the Federal Reserve. Well, Mr. Griffin, you were speaking out against the Federal Reserve System decades ago, before many of its current detractors were even born, and you wrote the definitive book on the subject, The Creature from Jekyll Island, uh, way back in, 19, in the 1990s, and before it was even fashionable to talk about the Federal Reserve System. Uh, this subject obviously has seen a paradigm shift since you began speaking on it, and there are millions, tens of millions more people out there now that know about this system than did before. So for the, the benefit of those listeners out there who may have heard of the Federal Reserve System and know something about it, but don't really know why they should be interested in it, what can you say about why people should care about the Federal Reserve and its operations? Well, that's, that's a very uh, germane question. The, the answer is, uh, is, is cuttingly sharp. I mean, the reason we should care about the Federal Reserve System is uh, because it is a fraud, and because it is a, a fraud that actually affects us in a very personal way. And the way it affects us is it, it expands the money supply and by so doing uh, causes this thing called inflation. And inflation is the silent thief of our purchasing power. And so it becomes like a hidden tax. So the reason people should be concerned about the Federal Reserve System is because the the system is taxing them every day through this uh, process of inflation and most of them have no idea that it's even going on and when you look at how much this tax is it's the, it's the biggest tax of all it's it's a silent tax it's a it's a, it happens daily you can't escape it there are no deductions no exemptions all you know is that the price of uh, bread and milk and housing and education and medical care and all that stuff just keeps going up up and up and even though you're getting uh, what appears to be a nice little raise now and then from your employer, the net effect is that the standard of living of the average American is going down and has been going down for the past three or four decades. So it's a very important topic, and it, it, that's the reason I think many people are uh, becoming interested now is because this light is beginning to seep through the cracks, and they're figuring out that, uh, that they're being uh, robbed, and they want to know who's doing it and how they're doing it. Absolutely. And we have seen that sea change in public opinion come about because of the tireless efforts of people like yourself. And, of course, now we have uh, Ron Paul's HR 1207, which has 296 co-sponsors now. Uh, tell us your thoughts about this legislation that Ron Paul has introduced, and, and what do you hope that it will achieve? Well, I, I am in favor of the legislation because it's, uh, it's uh, instrumental in uh, raising the consciousness of the average American. They hear about a, a bill to audit the Fed, and it sort of plants a question mark in their mind. Uh, well, yeah, isn't the Fed being audited? Uh, why not? Why do we have to have a bill to audit the Fed? Everybody else gets audited. <laughs> why, why do we need a, an act of Congress to, to audit the Fed? So I think it's uh, it's good in the sense that it's, it's raising the consciousness of the people and uh, putting the Fed in the framework of something that uh, needs to be examined and watched, whereas previously people hadn't even given much thought to the Fed at all. But beyond that... Um, 
I don't think we need to audit the Fed. We need to abolish the Fed. It's like saying we need to audit the mafia. No, we know what the Fed is doing. We know that it's stealing money from us. We know that it's unethical. We know it's based on a monetary fraud. We, we know all of those things without having to do an audit. And I said in my book that I feared that a movement to audit the Fed would merely gain a lot of traction on the part of politicians who could grandstand and say, oh, well, look, I'm calling for an audit of the Fed, knowing full well that nothing will come of the audit, that the Fed will still continue and then it'll take years and years for the audit to be performed and then they'll find out it was a whitewash just like the Warren Commission and the 9-11 Commission were whitewashes of the event and I, I saw it as a delaying tactic and I felt we should just get on with the main task which is to abolish the Fed. So um, I can see pros and cons to it and as I said earlier I do support the motion to audit the Fed, primarily because it's a kind of like a wake-up call to many people that once they start looking at the real facts, then they'll change their mind and say, let's abolish that thing. Well, then once that is accomplished and we do end up abolishing the Federal Reserve System, uh, what system do you envisage will be set up to take its place? Well, we have to realize what the Fed is. Uh, the Fed is not a government agency, even though it parades as such, and although it has government power, it was given that by the Federal Reserve Act, and whatever it does, uh, we must comply with or we go to prison, which makes it look like it's a government agency. But in fact, uh, James, it's a cartel. It's, uh, it's no different than a, uh, than a sugar cartel or an oil cartel or banana cartel. It happens to be a banking cartel. It's uh, really privately owned. It, it uh, drafts its own regulations. It uh, suckered Congress into passing a law to uh, convert its cartel agreement into law. So now the nation has to abide by a cartel agreement. And so you say, well, what do we do without it? Uh, we do very well without anything to replace a cartel. I think the world can get along just fine without cartels. In other words, I'm saying that I think banking should be treated no differently than any other business. It should be required and regulated to be honest, to keep its contracts, and to do all of the things that we expect any business to do. But beyond that, it should not be given any special privileges. It should not be given the power to create money out of nothing. It should not be given the power to throw people into jail, you know, all of these things. So I say we don't need to replace the Fed with anything except honest banking. G. Edward Griffin can be found at freedomforceinternational.org. Now, it's self-evident that the power to create money, the power to literally make money, which has been ceded to the private central bank owners, is the supreme form of political power, one that was perhaps best summarized in a very famous quotation from Mayor Rothschild, Give me control of a nation's money, and I care not who makes the laws. Now, in January of this year, I had a chance to talk to F. William Engdahl about this power that comes from the creation of money, and money as a form of political power. Listeners to this program will no doubt know Mr. Engdahl from the very interesting articles of his that I've quoted from over the years, including one of the best articles I've ever read, Doomsday Seed Vault in the Arctic, which should be required reading for everyone, and he can be found at engdahl.oilgeopolitics.net. And he is currently about to release a new book called The Gods of Money, Wall Street and the Death of the American Century. Last January, I talked to him on Economics 101 about this book and about money 
and political power. Well, we, we mentioned some of your earlier books, but I understand that you're currently just putting the finishing touches on a new book, The Gods of Money, uh, Wall Street and the Death of the American Century. What can you tell us about that well, work? There's a very lively debate, and has been for centuries actually, about uh, what really is money and how does it work. And what I realized is that most of the debate goes after a red herring and talks about quantity theory of money or the Keynesian approach or the Friedmanite approach or this or that and the other thing. And they all miss the central point. Money is primarily and fundamentally a political factor, a politically backed promise to pay between individuals, between nations and groups of nations. And ultimately, money rests on the question of who has the power and what their agenda is. Nothing. There's no magic about money. There's no magic about gold. And I decided to write the the money book based on a quote from Henry Kissinger attributed to sometime in the middle of the 1970s when he was Secretary of State and National Security Advisor to the President uh, in the U.S. And Kissinger said, if you control oil, it's possible to control whole nations. If you control food, you're able to control people. If you control money, you're able to control the entire world. And that literally is, is what the agenda is of the, what I call the gods of money. It's not so much about this current crisis, but the reason I call it Wall Street and the death of the American century, I, I look at the etiology of the disease. I look at the, the uh, morphology of, of the financial system in the United States as it came first in a growth mode, uh, a perverse growth mode, but a growth mode, to replace the pound sterling and the, the British uh, sterling preference area after World War II. Then it got into a crisis when its own gold reserves had become depleted. The European economies had rebuilt after World War II. They now were at an industrial state of the art that was more advanced than the U.S. plant and equipment for the most part and were able to create trade surpluses and accumulate dollars for their trade. And they were the central banks in Europe, France and Germany especially, back in the, in the late 1960s, began demanding gold for their dollars, especially during the Vietnam War. They said, America is running deficits. We, in effect, are financing the American-Vietnam War, which we fundamentally disagree with, uh, through those deficits and through the inflation of the dollar, uh, irrespective of the gold backing. So de Gaulle and others in Europe demanded physical gold from the Federal Reserve. When that gold reached a crisis point in August of 1971, Nixon pulled the plug on the, on the dollar gold backing. He unilaterally tore up the Bretton Woods Treaty of 1944 and said to the rest of the world, we are the global military superpower. Go, go to hell, in effect, is what he said. Excuse my French. And most of the world during the Cold War had little or no chance to oppose. De Gaulle was a fairly feisty person and uh, tried to pursue an independent French geopolitics. He tried to create a certain kind of detente with, with the Russians because he saw many uh, ways that the Americans had manipulated a Cold War tension to keep Europe under its, under its economic thumb. 
And the result of that was that the American banks uh, and the U.S. Treasury began manipulating a crisis in the French currency back in early 1968. And the crisis led to uh, unrest in the spring. And there's evidence that the U.S. intelligence started uh, sending activists into the student movement in France in May of 68 to create what became the, the French student uh, revolt that even the Communist Party of France opposed. They, they saw it as destructive. And one year later, de Gaulle was out of power. So uh, the U.S. created a system based on dollar debt after August 71. And there, the only limit on that dollar debt was the limit of the rest of the world. Japan in the 80s had almost infinite patience because Japan was totally militarily dependent on the U.S. military umbre uh, nuclear umbrella. And in Europe, of course, you had the threat, quote-unquote, of the Soviet nuclear strike force hanging over Germany, hanging over the rest of Europe. So the Europeans were, were effectively economic satraps of the United States and of the dollar, even though the dollar was being inflated massively because there were no controls, there were no restraints. You're the reserve currency of the world. You have the United States Treasury and the Federal Reserve, an unlimited ability to create money out of whole cloth, and that's what they did. The An interesting comparison is in the years from 1950 to 1970, shortly before the ending of the gold dollar connection, there was a increase of dollar reserves in the world economy of something like 51%. It's almost a flat curve if you, if you graph it out over those 20 years. Then from 1971 until about 2001, there's a 2,900% increase in the amount of dollar reserves floating around the world monetary system. That is the source of global inflation over the past uh, almost 40 years. And that is a source of, of uh, numerous uh, distortions in the healthy growth of the world economy. Now that dollar debt system has reached the limits of what they can plunder to prop up that debt. And that is really the significance of the what started as a subprime real estate crisis in a tiny segment of the U.S. real estate market. It's now a systemic crisis of the entire dollar system. By dollar system, I define the Anglo-American system that was built up at, at Bretton Woods in 1944, where Britain played a junior role in the American-dominated uh, dollar system after the Second World War. And that system has now, in its in its collapse phase, the banks are being kept, kept alive, Citibank, uh, Morgan Chase, and by artificial life support known as the American taxpayer, future debt uh, of untold trillions of dollars, and the same thing in Britain. There is no economic recovery in sight in America. There is no economic recovery that I can see in Britain. And the rest of Europe is schizophrenic. The European financial elites on the continent are schizophrenic about which way to go. They sense in, 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 their, uh, in their guts that the future of Europe lies to the east and not to the west any longer, that the Atlantic is not the key to stability for Europe over the coming decades, but rather the direction of Central Europe, Middle Europe, Russia, China, and the uh, various countries in between in Eurasia 
and that that has every potential economically in terms of raw material, in terms of energy, in terms of military uh, defense and so forth, that could create a prosperity for, uh, if it's done right, it could create a prosperity for uh, a century or more uh, for, for the world, ultimately. But that requires a nasty break with the American power elites, and that's something the European elites are very schizophrenic about. Frankly, I think they're, they're terrified. Please stay tuned to engdahl.oilgeopolitics.net for more information about Mr. Engdahl's forthcoming book. Now, if all of this information leads one to feel that the entire system is rigged against them and that there's really nothing they can do to fight back, that is not the point. Of course, this is very sobering information and should be taken very seriously as it points to the extremely dire nature of our grim economic reality. But... At the same time, there are ways to fight back against the system because the system can only function with our support, both tacit and explicit support. And, of course, I'm referring to the idea that was perhaps first raised on this program back in our non-compliance episode, which, by the way, I would wholeheartedly recommend for new listeners to this program. And in that episode, we talked about the idea of withdrawing our support from the system in order to stop the system from functioning. Now, this is an incredibly important idea, and one that I had the great honor to talk to Catherine Austin Fitz about in an episode of Economics 101, again from January of this year. Catherine Austin Fitz was a former managing director of a Wall Street investment bank and the former Secretary of Housing in the first Bush administration, and she currently runs Solari.com, where she offers economic and financial advice and news and information that bypasses the corporate media filters. And it was with great interest that I talked to her about shunning the banksters. We, James, we have a remarkably leveraged financial system, and in a, in a highly leveraged financial system, the person who makes the decision as to where the money goes has real power. And um, I'm always struck at how the average uh, retail investor or bank depositor or consumer doesn't begin to fathom how much power a small group of them have if they exercise their choice in a way that impacts um, the leverage in the system. So, for example... Uh, in 19, uh, in 2004, a dollar going into the banking system ultimately leveraged uh, to $164. And if you look at the profits that roll off loans from that and, and the fact that it's leveraged in the stock market further with debt, further with derivatives, um, you know, most people say to me, well, my bank account's very small. They don't begin to understand the leverage that comes from that. And so... Uh, we have incredible power to impact where money goes, what it does, and, and to improve the behavior of institutions because generally what happens is as we shift our attitude and take the attitude, you know, there's a Roman emperor who said money has no smell. The minute we decide, well, wait a minute, money does smell and I want my money to go into places that don't smell and we shift, millions of institutions have to shift with it, I, you know, I've sat in many a boardroom or in in the in the you know sort of decision making in Washington, and the attitude among many many people is there's no constituency for financial responsibility. There's no constituency 
to do the ethical thing. Well, the minute we create a constituency that's prepared to not wait for the elections, but exercise our vote right now with our money in the marketplace, it could have a dramatic, dramatic change. It certainly can. And I think there are many ways in which we can, we can do that and we can withdraw our time and money and energy from this system. And not, not necessarily only in a monetary sense, but what, what are some of the ways that we, for example, someone who's a small business owner or a small investor can, can really take back their, their power from that system? Well, the, the first thing is what are all the institutions you transact with? So who, who's your bank? Who's your accountant? Who's your attorney? Um, uh, who is uh, your brokerage account? Where uh, are you investing your money in, in what types of enterprises and companies? So if you go through all the transactions that we make, either as a business person, as a consumer, as a, uh, a any chooser of financial services and, and simply purchases, there's dramatic impact that we can have. Now, the power of this thing is not just, James, our ability to withdraw, but where we go. Let me give you an example. You will still find in the United States thousands of very hardworking, honest bankers, particularly who've left the big banks and gone to smaller banks, either started new small banks or sort of um, moved into the community banks. And, and you have a lot of really wonderful people who have been doing the ethical thing, but the crowd hasn't supported them. So as we shift money to those institutions and under the governance of the, or management of those people, we give them energy. So the critical question is not just who you're leaving, but more importantly, who, who are you, who are you giving your money to? Who are you empowering in the marketplace to govern and manage your money for you? Um, it's, it's, I often think of it as a body and um, the way blood goes through the body. Are we moving the blood to the head and to the brain and the heart and the lungs? Or are we moving it to the toes? Right now, if you go through the balance sheet and financial statements for the average American household, we are circulating all of our money to the toes. <laughs> you know, and, and, the, and the important thing is how we're going to start to feel once we start circulating the blood to the heart, the lungs, the brain. That's exactly it, and that's a very good analogy. So on, on that note, why don't you tell people about the work that you do over at Solari.com? Sure. Uh, my, uh, I do two things. I'm, uh, I publish the Solari Report, which is a briefing. It's really a high-level briefing of the kind you used to get when you were in Wall Street or Washington. Um, a high-level briefing on what's going on in the world today as it relates to personal and family wealth. And we have, uh, it, it's divided into a couple parts. We do a section, do a section called Money and Markets, a section called Ask Catherine. We get a huge number of questions, uh, and try and respond to those. And then I usually interview someone who's, uh, an expert on something that relates to building personal and family wealth. And then, um, I have a section called Let's Go to the Movies. In America, James, fact is fiction and fiction is fact. So I like to, people are constantly asking me, how does the economy really work? How does Wall Street really work? You know, how does the system really work? And I use movies to explain that. And then I'm also an investment advisor. Um, I have a company, Solari Investment Advisory Services, and that's what I do by day. And to, to stay current for both the Solari uh, report and investment advisory work, I keep... Uh, 
a blog at if you come to Solari.com and go to the blog, you'll find our blog. And I'm I'm constantly keeping abreast and posting things that relate again to personal and family wealth. Catherine Austin Fitz of Solari.com. Now, as I say, I think that this is perhaps the most fundamental issue of all of the issues that we are facing. Our economic reality underlies all of the social and political structures which are stacked on top of it and upon which they rest. Without the ability to create money out of nothing, which we have ceded to the banksters, or which we have allowed to be ceded to the banksters, they would have no power over us. And it is only by creating true and genuine grassroots alternative movements that we can ever hope to wrest that power back. Now, I don't pretend to be the leader of any such movement, and I would advise anyone to be wary of anyone who touts themselves as such, But there are movements that I think people should begin to look into as ways of accomplishing this shunning of the banksters, such as moveyourmoney.info, which advises people to take their money out of the too-big-to-fail Wall Street financial institutions, which are really parasites and vultures feeding on the real economy, and move their money to small, locally-owned community banks. Again, that's one effective way of helping to remove ourselves from the beast. Of course, there are many other solutions. One example would be community currencies. Another example would be movements to decentralize power from national governments and cede more power to local authorities in order to create the space to implement new economic ideas, including the creation of new forms of money. This is an extremely, extremely large topic, but one that's extremely important, so we will be coming back to it time and again in this podcast, and we will be offering more and more solutions for people to shun the banksters and take back the power, the central power, of controlling the money supply from these parasitical financial institutions. That's it for today. I am your host, James Corbett, thanking you for joining me and asking you to join me again next week for episode 121 of The Corbett Report. Know your toxins, BPA. My name is Tom Cranker, and I'm a jolly banker. I'm a jolly banker, jolly banker am I. I safeguard the farmers and widows and orphans, and I'm a jolly banker, jolly banker am I. When dust storms are sailing, and crops they are failing, I'm a jolly banker, jolly banker, am I? I check up your shortage and bring down your mortgage, singing I'm a jolly banker, jolly banker, am I? When money you're needing, mouths you are feeding, I'm a jolly banker, jolly banker, am I? Plaster your home with their furniture loan Singing I'm a jolly banker, jolly banker am I You show me you need it, let you have credit I'm a jolly banker, jolly banker am I Just bring me back two for the one I lent you Singing I'm a jolly banker, jolly banker
You gave me the idea before I'd given you the power, and that's not good business. Isn't it? No, I'm afraid it isn't. So, um, off you go. <laughs> nice to do business with you.